How's how's my sound? I'm in a relatively empty room. Do I need to uh, to bring a bunch of pillows in or something? Oh, that's that's what Unju just did. It's I, a I little it. it's a little echoey. Okay. Um, let me run. Let me run and see if I can't work on that. Just give me. One, is that? Do we have time for that? Is that okay? If you have time, we have all the time in the world. Yeah. That's some good sound effects. It's like a Foley stage. <laughs> That should be like the lead into this. Yeah, it's, it's getting there. Okay, is that a little better? Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption, and a little humor along the way. Welcome back to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb, and with me, as always, is fellow innovator, technologist, and futurist, Anju Ahuja. With our guest today, we're going to talk about innovating social change, and perhaps more importantly, how everyone, as an individual, can take on planet-sized challenges and actually make a difference. Stay tuned. It's my pleasure to introduce Brett Jenks, CEO of Rare, the conservation world's leading behavior change organization, and I'll let Brett share the details around his professional credentials uh, in a moment. But as always on this podcast, we like to start with something more qualitative and conceptual. So, so Brett, I'm going to give you a list of concepts and, and words I think describe how I know you. Fearless visionary, relentless problem solver, entrepreneur, finder and amplifier of the bright spots, environmental steward, obstacle smasher, risk taker, believer in the big idea, and collector of geniuses. Wow. <laughs> I thought you were just going to say a BSer, full of it regularly. That, that's on the internet. That You don't need that from me. <laughs> you know, normally at this point, we ask someone to take, you know, a 15 floor elevator ride with me or Justin and tell us about themselves. But uh, that list was so epic. I, I don't know that 15 floors would do it justice. So, so pretend I'm following you around the building, Brett, and tell me all about you. Well, okay. So, um, so who am I? Let's see. I'm the uh, I'm the proud CEO of Rare, an organization I have been at for what seems like most of my adult life. I have the great fortune of working with a bunch of really talented people and a network of very supportive and inspiring donors. I'm a father, a husband, and I guess I ended up doing what I do for a few reasons. One, I've always wanted to search for new and alternative and different ways of solving problems. I grew up as a kid playing in the woods in rural Ohio and rural Virginia, and I really didn't have any career aspirations. So I was kind of, uh, I guess, at the right place at the right time when Rare was looking for volunteers to help figure out how to teach local carpenters and farmers and construction workers how to become gainfully employed as Central America's first English-speaking nature guides, and that's how I started my career in conservation. I am curious. Somewhere in here, it must be true that you are a great storyteller. Didn't you at some point operate as a political correspondent that successfully got Hudson County Jail shut down after numerous atrocities were reported, and you've been involved in the advertising industry, and do you credit storytelling with any, any of that? And we'd love to hear more about all of that as well. I guess when, when you're the first grandchild, you end up listening to a lot of old people talk. I think I grew up listening to the old timers so keenly that I, I love stories. And so I, I, I guess I like telling stories. And, and there's certain kinds of stories that I've just repeated hundreds of times to help people understand why change is possible, what kind of change is needed. And I guess what I learned as a newspaper correspondent and what I learned making TV commercials at a very young age has helped as a conservationist. Yeah, no question. So I'm going to ask you to tell some of those stories about Rare. So um, 
I've had the pleasure of sitting in a ringside seat, at least for the last 15 years or so, of watching Rare really change. I'd love for you to tell people how the organization got started. Tell the story of Paul Butler, which is, he's an amazing person that unless you were in the conservation world, you, you might not have heard of. And really how the organization has changed over time, because the challenges keep getting bigger, it seems. I, I love telling Paul Butler's story. I mean, Paul Butler is a hero, and, and not just to me. And his story speaks volumes about the potential for inspiring change in the world. You know, I, I also have the great benefit of having had Paul work for me. I mean, one of my heroes in life worked for me for years, which is the kind of place Rare is, frankly. Paul was a 22-year-old student at London Polytechnic, which he calls the only unprestigious university in the entire United Kingdom. And he wrote a paper uh, for a professor about the plight of the St. Lucian parrot, Amazona versicolor, a bird no one had ever heard of. The paper called for a conservation strategy on this island nation in the Caribbean that included a two-day jail sentence for anybody caught with the bird, the creation of a national park, and the launch of ecotourism businesses so that people could be gainfully employed protecting and loving this parrot. This was a term paper, and the term paper got sent to the head of forestry of St. Lucia, who had a tiny budget and a staff of three or four, and he wrote a letter back to Paul's professor and said, okay, smart guy, come on down. Let's see if you can save this parrot. So Paul uh, graduated, moved to St. Lucia, and realized no one in St. Lucia had ever heard of this parrot either. And so he had to figure out, well, in order to get legislation passed to create a jail sentence for anybody caught with a parrot or to create a national park, he was going to have to figure out how to create a groundswell of support for a species few had seen and no one had ever heard of. And so he asked himself, you know, what moves people? What gets their attention? So he, he started looking at sports teams and their marketing and branding and, and perfume sellers and and beer uh, marketers and, and advertising. And he realized that St. Lucia had been passed back and forth over decades by the British and the French, and that it was newly independent. And it sort of struck him that this burgeoning pride in this newly born country could somehow be linked to what he hoped would eventually become a symbol of national pride. It's actually a brilliant idea. He was many years ahead of his time. And so he just started ripping off little little ideas, little ways of advertising to create little PSAs. And, you know, his early attempts were, as he would describe, pretty paltry, pretty weak, pretty unstrategic. But he was indefatigable and he worked his tail off. And with a teeny tiny budget, he launched this very kitschy campaign. He had a homemade uh, mascot. He painted the billboards by hand. He had a local folk singer write a song about the bird. Literally, they, they wrote a song, and the title of which was the Latin name of the bird. I mean, you couldn't have worse ideas for marketing. <laughs> and yet it, it worked. All of a sudden, there were parades in the street for the St. Lucian parrot. And every school on, on an island that's 16 miles wide and at the time had one traffic light, he ended up getting a gift that, that enabled the forestry department to buy a bus and equip it as a mobile teaching center. So the St. Lucian parent got his own tour bus. And at the time, there were 100 individuals left in the wild. 10 years later, the St. Lucian parent was voted by the people of St. Lucia to become its national symbol. It's on the passport. There are 1,500 in the wild. This college kid learned how to market and advertise and inspire and saved a species that has become a national symbol and has become one of the, one of the great case studies, you know, and it all started with this recognition that the most important question to ask is what's going to move people? So walk us through how you get from that kind of humble beginning to everything that Rare is doing today. You know, the problem is there's just always so much more to do. And so I think Rare has always wanted to be pushing itself to do even perhaps a little more than we think possible with the, the, the resources that we have. So when I, when I first met Paul Butler and he was running one campaign a year 
on some island, either in the Caribbean or in the Pacific. You know, he went from the St. Lucian parrot to the St. Vincent parrot to the Dominican parrot. And all of a sudden he was in Palau working on, you know, landscape issues in, in Micronesia and the, the Federated States there. It was clear that he had mastered the art of inspiring pride for nature in small populations and that he was getting really significant results. And, and so one day I challenged him with the what if. Well, what if we did a hundred of these a year? And he said, oh, you're mad. How would we do that? You're mad. <laughs> and at the time, I mean, poor Paul was flying from St. Lucia, where he lived, to Palau six times in a year. He was the number one frequent flyer in the Caribbean, like five years running, and because he, he was the Johnny Appleseed of local you know, conservation education. Yeah. And we said, well, God, Paul, we just need a different delivery model. You can't, you can't save the world by yourself. You know, what if we clone you, Paul? That set us on a new course. And so we went from one person training uh, uh, one local leader by himself on one new island every year to rare training a dozen local leaders in a particular geography for, for four or five times a year. And so we eventually built these little training academies and we had you know, 50 or 60, some years, 70 newly minted Paul Butlers running their own conservation campaigns in their own languages, in their own cultures, just customizing a, a well-tuned model. And that led to the question, essentially, now that we can deliver change by putting little, you know, we saved this dots all over the map, all over the world, what would it look like if all of those efforts were focused on a singular global challenge? And so we upped the ambition again. And at that phase, we then said, well, what, what about coastal fisheries? Which was really terrifying because we didn't have a single fisheries expert on our staff. This was about 10 years ago. Wow. We had just been asked for so many years, what, what, how, what are you doing about coral reefs? What are you doing about mangroves? What about the plight of these coastal fisheries that a billion people depend on every day for their culture, their livelihood, and their food supply. And so finally we said yes, and, and we started tinkering around and ended up building a program now called Fish Forever. Today, Fish Forever is engaging and inspiring about 1,100 coastal communities in 10 countries. And we're now going to spend the summer building a scale plan to go to up the ambition again from you know, 1,100 communities that I would hope to tens of thousands of communities so that we can restore the fisheries and the habitats on which a billion people depend. And that's just one of our programs. So from, from one guy inspiring one community to training dozens to inspire dozens of communities to now, what does it look like to have systems change at scale? And it's networks of individual change leading to collective action. And so the biological system needs to be networked, and then the social and political outcomes need to be networked. Now you can imagine a whole system nationwide where this the Fish Forever team, for example, in a country like Indonesia, now has whole provinces. These are some of the richest coastlines, richest mangrove and coral reef systems on the planet. And you now have networks where 60% of the fishing effort along those coastlines are now all employing this Fish Forever system. And so that's what individual change can get you at scale. But first, you need to know how to get that, that first fisherman or that first fisherwoman and that first follower to get on board. So I, I guess to answer your question, Justin, as soon as we get good at something, you know, you look up to the horizon and you think, wow, there's a lot more to be done. And then you, and then you row a little harder, a little faster. I think you're touching on something that I learned through um, my involvement with UNICEF, which is you can engage individuals with simple things like how to wash your hands or, you know, how to, you know, properly, how to give your child a more nutritious diet. But ultimately, if you're not engaging the entire community effectively, it's, it's not possible to scale very efficiently. You know, you really need community engagement. You need communities to feel like they're actually sponsoring the activity as opposed to an organization is coming in and prescribing things. 
Absolutely. And what you've just said, based on our experience over 30 years engaging literally millions of people, what most people miss is that what's so important about what you would lightly call community engagement is that the mom who's changing the way she feeds her child is so much more influential to other mothers than we are. Right. That if you community engagement in a way is about empowering thousands of spokespeople. Movements are led by networks of people who believe in each other. And that's what we always miss when we put on our marketing and advertising and PR hats for change, is that more and more people are realizing that we, the people, are the best evangelists and communicators. And so our job as change agents is to sort of provide the opportunity for the masses to change each other in a good way. That's how change actually takes place. So powerful. In most aspects of at least business, when we try to drive behavior change, we really have to think about a large upfront investment and then continuous ongoing reward thereafter, whether it's organically or inorganically generated to keep that change in place and to amplify it over time. So how do you go about driving this kind of change at scale, especially given so many of the communities you've been developing are distinct, they're disconnected? Um, they're in remote locations, um, they're disintegrated from or just not integrated with, uh, you know, our daily lives here. How do you make this, how do you make all of this happen at scale? The question of how to change behavior at scale is arguably the most important question for humanity today. We are at a precipice. We are at a turning point. Climate change is real. It is upon us. And we've got very little time to adjust. So if we can't figure out how to change behavior at scale, we are in a heap of trouble. The way we think about behavior change at Rare is that it starts with an individual. And so understanding what motivates people to do the things we do is really key. And, and our, I guess our, our theory of the case is that for decades, and in some cases you could argue for a century, conservationists have had a pretty limited toolkit. The provision of information, it was always assumed, would lead to change. If you know there's a problem, you're going to adjust your behavior. And that's just been proven to not be true. We all know there's so many things we should be doing, but we don't do them. And right. The question is why. You know, there's been a prevailing view that uh, policy change, national level legislation would solve, you know, all the problems that face us. And I think legislation is critical, but people don't always follow the law. And with nature, it only takes a handful of people to do a lot of damage. And so you can't just count on policy either. Economics and economic levers, incentives have been the rage in the environmental movement for only about a decade because uh, I think most environmentalists didn't want to embrace you know, uh, economics or market forces until just this last generation of environmentalism. While those are important levers, there are three equally important, maybe even more important levers over time. One is emotional appeals. We are incredibly emotional species. Our emotions get the best of us and trump reason all the time. Second, social influences. We are one of the most social of animals. Failure to recognize that can imperil all of your, you know, ideal progress. And then there's this is a little jargony, but Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler coined the term choice architecture, right. which is really just the, sort of the context and the timing of decisions. We believe in just you know, simplifying that by saying, how do you make it really easy to do the right thing? So emotional appeals, social influence, and making it easy are as good as or better than, but certainly complementary to policy, economics, and the provision of information. If you have that kind of robust, comprehensive toolkit, then the question becomes, how do we truly empathize with the group whose change will benefit all of us? How do we understand them? How do we meet them where they are? And how do we encourage them to partner with us in designing the kind of change that is necessary? So you sort of got on the one hand, this toolkit and this way of looking at the world. On the other hand, you need a, a lot of empathy and the time necessary to be able to engage. Um, sometimes that means moving at the speed of trust. Oh, that is a good line. And, and you have to go slow to go fast at times. And so can you really understand the target audience enough to then say, 
all right, how can we bring about this change? You know, Anshu, you mentioned making a big investment up front. I think making the kind of investment in upfront in understanding the nature of the problem, looking, taking the time to look at other efforts to solve this problem in the past, you know, looking out there for bright spots and beginning to, to, to sort of crowdsource great ideas and proven approaches and models, that upfront investment is often skipped. And I think then you can get to the point of saying, all right, here is a theory for change. Here are the pilots that we're going to run in order to, to sort of test the most likely fail points and figure out whether we can begin to move an individual or a small group of individuals. And then scaling is often a different question. You know, one is, can we, can we change a handful of people's behavior? And then the second question, once, once the answer is a definitive yes, if the value proposition is there, how do we deliver that change at scale? You know, what's the institution, the policy, the funding, the delivery model that's needed to deliver change at scale? And I think too often we conflate those two questions of how do you make change and then how do you make change at scale? Yeah, it's interesting. Somewhere in there, what I, what I heard was you not only have to make people aware of the problem, you have to help them cultivate their own inner activist. And I mean that in a good way, activist in a good way. And then you have to make them want to tribally convert other activists to join in the cause. But, but in there, it sort of assumes that everybody has to take some level of responsibility, right, for, for what their impact is, for what they're doing, and sort of rise up to the challenge of changing themselves, which, you know, that is hard to do at scale. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to do on an individual basis. Yeah, it really is. Are there organizations that you took inspiration from to say, hey, look, I saw how this worked. I'm going to make it happen. And they can be maybe capitalist organizations. Maybe they're nonprofit. I mean, they could be anything. Are there things where you're like, that that's change at scale? We have been influenced over the years by so many different leaders, so many organizations, so many different kinds of enterprises or ideas that I'm not even sure I would know where to begin. I mean, I would say just off the top of my head, I think Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat are, are doing what I would call a great job of basic substitution yep. at scale, or at least moving towards scale. When you can prove that you can have a tasty plant-based burger, and then you can get it into Burger King like Impossible did, you are first solving the problem, which is, if you talk to, to uh, Pat Brown, who, who founded Impossible Foods, you'll know that he's super passionate about wanting to feed plant-rich burgers to folks who really like meat. That's his target audience. Yep. He wants to substitute one thing for another. So figuring out how to have a, a, a tasty, delicious, feels like a burger product, and then figure out how to get it into, you know, again, those are two different questions, how to get it into Burger King and then get it into every supermarket. I think that's a really good example of, of beginning to solve a problem. But it's also very, in some ways, some of my colleagues within the conservation space might say, yeah, but that's, that's a great product. It's a great, great entrepreneurial endeavor, but it's pretty simplistic. You're not shifting a whole system. And so often in the environmental arena, we're working on whole system change because we're dealing with not private property or not individual choice, but common pool resources. So as you consider the atmosphere, we all depend on it, but none of us own it or can manage it. The ocean, most fishers are racing to catch the last fish in a relatively lawless environment, or even, you know, waterways and watersheds and, you know, the way we just look at how hard it is to manage collectively how, the, you know, the, the remaining sources of fresh water on the planet. These common pool resource challenges are the biggest and most threatening and most pressing. And so individual behavior, if it doesn't lead to collective action into networks of change, you, we're not going to end up solving the problem. So I took, a, I took a really difficult question and made it even harder. I'm sorry, but that's what we're facing. I got a lot out of that. And I hope our, our listeners do, because I think we need to rise to the challenge, right? And we need to help each other rise. So you kind of alluded to basic design thinking, right? So that you have the empathy and then you've got defining the problem and then you start prototyping. Part of that system, right, includes being okay with failing. How do you deal with that in, in a nonprofit where people who are funding you 
might have less of an appetite for failure uh, for their money they're donating than than solving the problem might require? It's a great question. And it's a really difficult one for nonprofit leaders these days because, you know, you're right. Most of, if, if the problems were already solved, we wouldn't be necessary. If they were really easy to solve and, and you could put a, val- a price tag on the, the solution, well, the private sector would take care of it. So we're dealing with sort of the messy, the difficult, the challenging, and often, you know, there's, there's, there's really two kinds of donors. There's, there's a, a donor who is investing their own money and money that they've made themselves, and they are often more willing to take risks because they took a lot of risks to, to generate that wealth. Right. And there are other donors who have set up institutions that where people are paid good money and people are very well educated, they're very well trained to be able to say no to ideas that are not quite ready for prime time. And most of the, the breakthrough ideas spend part of their life cycle in the not ready for prime time phase. Uh, in, you know, in Silicon Valley, there's angel investors and, and there are folks willing to put up seed capital to let people go off, sprint, and take 18 months to either succeed to get to the A round or to fail. And in the nonprofit arena, often you have to spend a lot of time getting everybody comfortable with the potential risk, doing an inordinate amount of prognosticating and planning. Um, and, and often the measure of success is how well you, how faithfully you implemented a plan you designed two years ago for which you got a grant. Right. And, and, and so that makes innovation even more challenging than it otherwise would be. There's, that's no fault of the donors, by the way. That's sort of the nature of the system we're in right now. But I do think the need for breakthrough innovation in a variety of ways, there's probably some things we could be do, doing differently and we're trying. You know, I'll say one other thing. We, we spent a bunch of time this past year implementing the thoughts of a, a terrific sort of entrepreneurial thought leader called Anne May Chang. She wrote a book called Lean Impact. And, and this was built on Eric Ries's uh, Silicon Valley sweeping lean thinking. And the idea is, you know, fail fast. And, and basically it's take your idea, take your product and don't take it to market. Take it to a microcosm of the market and figure out what are the most likely fail points and figure out what's your value proposition, what's your growth potential and what's your potential impact and, and test it for $5,000 or $10,000 before you build out the product. Now, imagine telling a donor, look, we know we're going to need a million dollars to even begin to think about solving this problem, but we're probably going to spend it in $50,000 chunks over the next two years failing until we find the right product in the right market to be able to you know, address homelessness or begin to move people towards a plant-rich diet or to begin to fix a fishery. That's a that's a tricky way to do business, but really that's what we need to be doing. And so then you have to convince very talented people who work in conservation organizations to be willing to state their hypothesis publicly, collect data, and be willing to come back to the weekly meeting to say, wow, we bombed this week. It didn't work at all. No one liked the new webpage. And so we're going to pivot. We're going to try something new. Organizations that do that learn faster. And I believe she who learns fastest wins. And so that's just a, another kind of cultural shift that I think we're, we're, we're starting to push, both within Rare and among a, a number of our partners. But it's not easy. And, and that kind of process you see often in innovation labs, but you're right, it's, it doesn't exist in many other organizations, nonprofit or, or for-profit. Um, I, I'm going to say something that's a little bit controversial, and, and Brett, hopefully you won't just disconnect after I say it. Um, but something in what you said just made me think about comments other people have made in the past about the difference between how nonprofit organizations, you know, social causes, e- even people in environmental conservancy are operating, that it tends to be very almost inwardly focused and not as integrated with the broader market, right? The economy or large companies out there that could be forces for change. And many people would argue that the average for-profit enterprise is also not very integrated in doing things that drive change. I mean, some of them can fall into the category of ESG stocks, but um, but for the most part, they, everybody has their disparate objectives. Do you think there is a broader opportunity 
to have organizations like yours that are really trying to impact at scale rapidly because the climate change problem is so out of control, for them to do more with with companies, with you know, for-profit enterprises, with maybe not so much governments because that's been happening for a while, but is there a chance to leverage other platforms? Absolutely. And I think no one is going to succeed without leveraging those other platforms. Absolutely. Uh, the answer is yes. And I'll give you a couple of examples where, you know, Rare is a, is a small global conservation organization. People, you know, people don't like, some people don't like when I say that because it, it, it seems like I'm belittling our own institution. But, you know, we have a $30 million uh, budget this year. We've got 170 staff. How does that compare with the Fortune 500? How does that compare with developing economies? How does that compare with the reach of the top eight social media companies or the top five streaming companies? If we aren't thinking about how to leverage the platforms and the channel and potential delivery models of private enterprise, you know, I think we should be ashamed of ourselves. So the way we've begun to learn how to do that, and it's not easy, because most people join nonprofits because they want to get out of the for-profit exactly. arena. Exactly. Exactly. But I never want to be associated with with commercial entities to begin with. And, and, well, and so, you were even saying earlier, right? They have general disdain for market forces, right? A desire to remove oneself from the capitalist equation in favor of something more pure. Yeah. And, and I think while that's, it sounds noble and, and one can feel very comfortable in the silo, uh, it ends up becoming like, you know, another version of the ivory tower because we have to innovate faster than these markets are developing, or at least accompany them if we're going to even keep up as as new ways of exploiting natural resources are invented. But I'll go back to say, I don't want to sound negative about this. I think you're right. The opportunity is immense. Let me give you an example. What if you could take the best of behavioral insights from evolutionary biology, social psychology, neuroscience, and package them and codify them and simplify them so that, for example, the average Hollywood showrunner, scriptwriter, producer was able to build in just a few moments into the context, the characters, the plot lines, uh, enough of a, let's just call it a nudge, that the billions of people sitting on a couch looking at their phones or looking at their screens begin to see characters doing the right thing, begin to see characters and plot lines, beginning to see the consequences of bad behavior on screen, that channel is invaluable to an environmentalist because you have the potential to shift culture. Now imagine different channel, social media, you know, whether it's Pinterest or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok, what are the ways of leveraging social media? That's quite obvious if you're thinking about the fact that one of the most important behavioral insights we've seen in the last few years is is that uh, of dynamic norms, which is a relatively new term in, in academia. And what it basically means is when humans have a sense that a new norm is emerging, like I'm noticing electric vehicles on the highway as I drive to work, I'm noticing solar panels on rooftops. I'm noticing friends starting to eat more veggies and less meat. I'm noticing one, the sense that norms are changing is one of the most powerful drivers of change because it does two things to us. One, it gives us a sense that maybe we're supposed to be changing too. And second, it gives us a sense that maybe change is easier than I thought. And that's kind of all you need to get started on your change journey, a sense that others are already going there and it may not be that hard. And so if you're thinking about conservation as partnering with private equity or venture capital or Fortune 500 companies and their supply chains or social media or streaming media or the gaming industry, each one of those is an avenue for shifting culture and shifting norms, which is what we desperately need to do to address the tragedy of the commons we're facing in our atmosphere, on our land, and in the ocean. Well, in this past, you know, 16 months now, we've we've all had a crash course in, in new adoption of norms. 
right? Or adoption of new norms, I should say. You don't immediately shake hands with people anymore. It can change that quickly. So the two elephants in the room, the Amazon and Amazon. So mm-hmm. one is on the brink of survival, and some people would say it's beyond the tipping point. And another was sort of a lifesaver during the pandemic. And, and by that, I'm referring to the Amazon, the jungle down south, which you know is massive state of degradation, deforestation. You know, it was ravaged by fires. And then we've got this other Amazon that you know ships people everything from dental floss to bulk Red Bull to their door. And that may continue on for decades post-pandemic if it's around for decades. Can you talk about you know, the impact of both or, you know, how rare is thinking about both and, you know, just how we as people should be thinking about all of this? You have nailed a really significant issue for humanity. And it's the culture of convenience leading to a calamity of the commons. How's that for alliteration? Calamity of the commons. I love it. Culture of convenience leading to the calamity of the commons. Yes. It's Susian. (laughs) So let's take Jeff Bezos's Amazon and let's talk about the culture of convenience. I mean, on the one hand, it is a cultural and economic juggernaut, and it has absolutely shifted supply chains for multiple sectors of our economy and inspired a whole bunch of other industries to to shift and follow suit. And there are clearly some benefits ecologically to platforms that can streamline delivery and reduce greenhouse gas emissions as a result. If everyone drives to the 7-Eleven to get their dental floss, rather than having one truck delivering dental floss to to 10 houses in a row in, in the idyllic version of Amazon, well, then that's a benefit. So there are pros and there are cons. It feels kind of silly to be for or against uh, something like Amazon. It is not going away soon, and nor nor is that business model. And on the other hand, you have in the Amazon, there's still way more that's right about the Amazon than there is wrong about the Amazon. I mean, conservationists have worked for decades to set aside protected areas, to engage farmers, to help transition, to uh, reposition and recast supply chains to some of the global consumer packaged goods companies to change the quality and quantity of the products that they're sucking out of the Amazon. So it could be a lot worse. It is not good. But I think within both Amazons, there's certainly, I guess like you, I'm an optimist, there's certainly reason for hope, but also reason for significant vigilance and investment and partnership because we're nowhere near figuring out how to either reduce the downside of one of those Amazons or make sure we sustain the other one. We've got a long way to go. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I will be the first to admit, I kicked myself the other day when I realized I had four different packages from Amazon that had almost microscopic items within them. And had I just been patient enough to wait to consolidate it all or just driven to a store, I might've done the environment greater good. And so, you know, Chris and I now are consolidating all of our orders for the month and trying to create these complex inventory management systems for our own home. But um, I do hope every little bit makes a difference, right? Because we can't operate the way we were during the pandemic in a sustainable way. And not accelerate the broader problem that we're seeing around us. Well, let's let's take that experience you just mentioned and, and amplify it because this question of, you know, I'm one consumer and I'm clicking on one Amazon site, you know, how much does that matter? Uh, I think people are really struggling right now in the United States with the question of what can I do to make a difference? And, and what's funny is there's sort of this ongoing debate about climate change and individual behavior where the leading climate advocates would argue and have argued and write op-eds seemingly weekly about how your individual behavior doesn't matter. Don't listen to the groups that would tell you certain behavioral changes are actually going to move the meter on climate. And yet they would never say that about voting. Um, right. That's true. You, your individual vote matters for two reasons. One, because they count them, generally speaking. And two, because as you vote, as you talk about voting, as you prepare to vote, as you do your research, you're communicating with a lot of other people and you're setting norms and you're sending signals. And the same is true with your individual behavior on something as something like climate change. And so Rare has spent, we've spent the last year beginning to design a program that we call Make It Personal. And you know, if you forgive me the shameless plug, I think it's important in the context of this conversation because 
We did a bunch of polling and we found that 55% of Americans want to personally take action on climate change. And yet most Americans have no idea what to do. So when we asked them, you know, what's the number one thing you can do to address climate change? 61% said recycle, which is not a top 25 solution to climate change. Right. 40%, which is the second most popular answer, said use less plastic. Noble, but not a top 25 climate change solution. And so we, we, we went out, we did the research, and we figured out what are the most important things you could do, you and I and Justin could do to address climate change. And it turns out it's adopt a plant-rich diet, buy carbon offsets, contract for green energy, which is you know, renewable energy credits if you don't own your home, or installing solar panels on your rooftop. Don't waste food. Electrify your vehicle, meaning make your next car electric, an EV. Fly less and you know, use uh, 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 video communications more frequently, which was pretty easy the last 13 months. Uh, and then finally, get engaged socially and politically for the sole reason that if you would begin to adopt some of these behaviors and you let other people know you're doing it, not out of virtue signaling, just out of information sharing, you're setting a new norm. And if we can get 10% of Americans to begin to adopt those behaviors, we measurably move the meter. In fact, that would be one of the 10 most significant reductions of greenhouse gases in the world. Just getting 10% of Americans to adopt the behaviors I just outlined would, would be one of the most, so your individual behavior could add up to becoming one of the most significant things we could do. And not contrary to the push for comprehensive climate legislation, but as a complement to it, we believe that would make it a lot easier for our legislators who would see solar panels, electric vehicles, and the jobs that are created manufacturing them as a pretty good, because they'd see so many more of them out there, it would provide a lot of cover to get the kind of legislation that we know is needed. And so that's how individual behavior matters because it leads to collective action, which enables new norms to turn into new policy. Okay. So I don't know who goes to Justin's dinner parties when he used to have them. And, you know, when I've had people come to mind- Back in the before times. Back in the before times, pre-pandemic, um, you know, lots of us would talk about different investment vehicles, stocks that we're investing in, securities, you know, all kinds of things. I've never heard of one person at my dinner table ever talk about buying a carbon offset. So help us understand more about what is that all about? How accessible is it? What can people be doing? Wow, this is a long one. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak in bullet points. So, number one, only two percent of Americans have ever bought a carbon offset. Um, number two, corporations are starting to buy them in droves because they've made commitments publicly to carbon neutrality, and right. so to offset their emissions, they have to go out and invest in other projects out there that are planting trees that are restoring mangroves, that are sucking carbon out of certain industrial processes and putting them back in the ground. Three, there are a lot of carbon offset projects out there worth buying. There are some that are less worthy, and it is sometimes hard for the average consumer to tell the difference. But I think there's a bigger suite of problems underlying the carbon offset market for individual consumers. And one is so much of the emphasis has been on, well, what's my carbon footprint and how do I calculate it and how accurate it is, which is a math problem. And so much of the emphasis has been on, well, is this going to assuage my guilt, like, like paying a penance uh, you know, or a tithe at some point in the history of my church? And, and, a, and, a, and a good formula for addressing climate change is probably not as one of my colleagues says, addressing guilt with a mathematical exercise. And so that's one of the reasons the sort of carbon offset market has had a lot of trouble getting off the ground. I mean, the fact that a lot of environmentalists hate the idea, even though yeah. we're, we're, environmentalists love pushing cities to become carbon neutral and universities to become carbon neutral and companies to become carbon neutral, knowing that one of the only ways they can do that in the beginning is by buying carbon offsets even though personally they hate the idea of carbon offsets, we're kind of stuck because we're in a system where in the near term, carbon offsets are a glorious opportunity to begin 
the discussion about neutrality to help people understand what goes up must come down. In fact, we have to get it out of the atmosphere in order for us to address this problem. And so I think purity um, and perfection has become the enemy of virtue and good. Do we quickly run out of supply on the carbon offset market if this becomes the fashion, right? If we had all of the, the means to remove and offset the carbon emissions, we wouldn't have a problem. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we will quickly run out of supply. I mean, one might argue that the, the inventory of certified offsets is certainly finite. I think when the market signals start moving in that direction, there are so many entrepreneurs and there's so much capital out there that would love to solve that problem. I just, I don't see that actually being the obstacle. And, and I would say furthermore, the problem with most of these kinds of conversations is what Elka Weber, who's a rare board member and a, you know, the, the kind of academic who's already won a lot of prizes and might eventually end up winning some of those really, really big ones that I won't name. <laughs> I was her research assistant at the University of Chicago. You're kidding me. Okay. No, no. Um, she was, she was in the behavioral science department, which is now Dick Thaler's behavioral economics department. Um, Elkie's amazing. Yeah, I haven't said hello to her in years, but she taught me how to use SAS and SPSS. And, That's fantastic. Yeah, put me on a great, actually, on my first exposure to climate change happened on a project with her. So and- yeah, That's so funny because as soon as, as, soon as we, we decided we were going to build this Center for Behavior in the Environment at Rare, I literally called Dick Thaler. I just cold called him like I would have as a cub journalist reporter. And I said, hey, uh, Richard Thaler, you just won the Nobel Prize and I want you to help us change behavior globally on climate change. And he said, well, Brett, it's nice to meet you. I did just win the Nobel Prize and I'm going to maximize utility this year by playing golf. (laughs) 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 And I, and I say that because he he said it in good humor. He said, but in fact, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Elka Weber. And so Elka Weber came up with, you know, the the concept of the single action bias. And so this is all a a, a fun and long-winded way of basically saying, The problem with these conversations is that as humans, we have this single action bias. We think it's going to be one thing. So the carbon offset conversation is so problematic because everybody just assumes that when I say I like carbon offsets, I'm saying the only solution to climate change is carbon offsets. It's one of thousands. It's just one solution. Adopting a plant-rich diet, that's one solution. There is no single solution. We are at the all hands on deck every one of these things matters moments. And, and so we, we just have to remind ourselves to avoid that phenomenon. Well, well you're going to have to say hello to her for me next time you talk to her. In fact, I'm going to reach out after this is done, after I buy some carbon offsets. Um, but <laughs> I have a question about that, actually. Uh, two questions. One, is there a site that's analogous to the equivalent of Charity Navigator where someone can go to figure out which projects are, are maybe um, more efficient investments than, than others. And, and the second one, I'm kind of teasing it already. My second question is, why do we talk about it in the context of buying? And can we reframe it so it feels more like an investment to people? Uh, I love those two questions. So one, yes, there are, I, I'm just going to say rare.org and cooleffect.org are uh, two places where you could go to, 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 we're just beginning to test Okay. What it looks like to be a provisioner of those offsets, and I, and I think a, a, so. In the, in the near term, a better a better investment of time would be go to CoolEffect.org. They're a partner of ours. I love them because they are harder and more rigorous on their uh, more rigorous with their offset providers than than I would say many of the certifiers are. Okay. So I would say their gold. You know, they are. There is a thing called the gold standard. I would say the gold standard is is CoolEffect. And so the answer, I would say go there first. And it's E F F E C T. Yeah, E F F E C T. Cooleffect.org. And then I would say, um, just tell me again, what, what was this, the second question? Was it, so words matter, and I pay a lot of attention to language, maybe more than I should. It's probably because I'm a closet wannabe writer and have been my whole life. But um, you know, when we often talk about things like buying or spending, yeah. you know, those languages mm-hmm. signal certain things to people you know, really what you're talking about is investing in the future of the planet. And so why don't we reframe the discussion around carbon offsets into one where individuals can invest in yeah. their future and the next generation's future? I'm sure there's, there are legal, you know, I'm sure there's some regulations that say you have to call it what it is, right? Yeah. But, but why don't we reframe the broader discussion around it? 
I think that's going to happen. And I'll tell you why. I'm pretty sure I know that's going to happen because we have over the last year been working at Rare, developing a, a technological solution to this problem. We came up with the idea that we could create an algorithm that would be served up in a widget through your banking app, your mobile banking app. So you're on your phone and you're going to click on your account balance for the month. And up's going to pop a little, hey, Anju, here is your carbon footprint for the month. Check it out. And we will have taken all of your expenses associated with your, your credit card and your checking account. We will have run them through an algorithm, having scrubbed life cycles and greenhouse gas emissions associated with every dollar spent in four or 500 different categories of the economy. This literally exists. We have a patent pending on this, this concept. And we would then very elegantly tell you your carbon footprint with one click and then let you buy a, a corresponding commensurate offset with another click. And so we thought, oh my God, this is a billion dollar idea. And so we ran out and started testing it with, with banks. And we had blue chip banks run tests with us with their own thousands of their own consumers and, and customers. And I'll never forget the head of research for one of the top three banks in America said, we have never rated a feature higher on the uniqueness scale than this idea of like a two-click carbon neutrality feature. On the other hand, this isn't really a job to be done when you come to your mobile banking app. Americans just aren't thinking that way. So, mm. so you have to ask yourself, even if you get the right language, Mm-hmm. The context matters. When are people going to be thinking about investing in carbon offsets? What's the, what's the medium? What's the channel? What's, what's the wrapper you're, you're going to put around it? It's, it's quite complicated. Americans are not thinking right now about their own carbon neutrality or, or how they achieve it. And they're not really being encouraged to do so by the top 25 climate advocacy organizations who have done marvelous things and very successfully advocated, you know, and pushed the Biden administration to do some of the things the Biden administration is now doing. But there is a yawning gap out there. And so repackaging offsets as not something to assuage your guilt, not a penance, but a hopeful investment in nature and the people who are going to protect it and benefit from it is probably a much better way to talk about, you know, doing the right thing. So Brett, we're going to do the fun things now. Are you, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like you like fun? Let's do it. I love fun. (laughs) Okay. So brand theft auto. Are you ready, Brett? I am ready. I was born for this game, Justin. Okay. So work with me. Coca-Cola starts an alternative energy business. What does that look like? (laughs) Coca-Cola starts an alternative energy business, and it is called Burp Mobility. (laughs) All right. You're going to have to elaborate on that one. (laughs) So children all over the world on skateboards with their bottle of Coke and Pop Rocks and they're burping into the sails, moving them down the streets. <laughs> I like it. That's pretty genius. We, we might have to draw that one up. <laughs> All right. I, I have one more challenging for you. ExxonMobil starts an organic farming business. What is their market differentiator? <laughs> okay. Um, ExxonMobil starts an organic farming business. Their differentiator is for 2 million years we've been sucking nature out of the planet for the next 5 we're going to be putting good stuff back into the soil nice hope that's not too negative but it's probably fair uh, it's about as positive as i would expect you to speak of exxonmobil we value candor okay <laughs> uh, all right here's one for you that that mixes up a couple of your um initiatives tesla enters the sustainable fishing industry what is their big innovation Tesla enters sustainable fishing. The sushi on autopilot finds your dinner plate at home. (laughs) That's a good one. Right on. Okay. The entire conservation world embraces NFTs, non-fungible tokens. How does that change fundraising? Christie's becomes the world's best fundraiser because they have taken 
digital photos of the remaining endangered species, and they've sold them off for a billion dollars each. I think you might want to start that, actually. Cut out the middleman. (laughs) I have a weird thought related to that. Um, What if there was actually a market to be able to claim, for the people that are driven by their ego out there, the right to be able to say that you purchased from someone else their status as having been an early supporter of a cause before the cause blew up. So like, say you were investor or donor number 10, <laughs> right, for an important cause and down the road, you know, some person who has not really addressed anything cause-related in their life comes around and says, I want to up my status, like in a game, I'm going to buy your status from you. And by then you're already on to like 10 other causes. I, I think that's a really cool idea. And I, I would say in, in a way, you know, Justin, my response could have been, that's literally not even a joke. I mean, in the next five years, conservation groups will be selling NFTs to raise money for conservation. Uh, in some ways, a visualization or coupon of a great outcome of a conservation project should have that kind of value. And the question always becomes, well, who actually gets the credit for making the change? And therefore, who owns the value created? Right. I think in some ways that would be a really great incentive for better measurement of what might be called um, additionality, right? Interesting. A little too technical. The only downside is the carbon footprint of NFTs is pretty substantial at this point. Yeah, of course. There are folks still working on reducing blockchain uh, emissions, but still early days. Yeah, there was uh, someone who worked, I think, works at ARC, wrote a blog about how investing in crypto ultimately contributes to sustainability. And and if memory serves, they were kind of called out on it because we're not at that point yet with crypto, but there are impressive efforts being made to make it more sustainable. Right. To make strides in that area. Yeah. And I think right now the the new the new entrants are sort of half as bad and and half as bad is really not very good. So I have a wild card because we talked about Amazon and out of fairness (laughs) to to other players in the retail space. Say Walmart and every other grocer is only allowed to sell what they grow. So like farm to shelf, with a few minor exceptions. Tell me the good, the bad, and the ugly of that world. So Walmart and all the other supermarkets are only allowed to sell what they grow. Yep. Like w- w- you're mandated to be 99, 90% farm to shelf with your inventory. Okay. I would say what a beautiful world it would be if Walmart became the organic farmer's market down the street. Well, that's really romantic, actually. That's what it would look like. Um, the question is, would there be enough food for everybody? <laughs> yeah, it's a big question. I mean, I think we know the answer today. That would take, that'd be quite a transition. One of the things that made me think about, do we need as many people in the supply chain moving things around or can things become more local and more efficient? And, you know, is it better to maybe be eating what's grown more closely to you and is fresher? And, you know, maybe you give up some things. Maybe you don't. I mean, people are giving up meat, right, for plant-based products. So, yeah, there are a bunch of things in there that I would love to unpack one day because I think the food supply chain still needs more attention. Well, it's so hard to even have these conversations right now because as, as soon as you talk about the idyllic nature of eating what you grow or eating out of the farmer's market or, or being, you know, being afforded the luxury of making all those choices, you get in this really challenging and important questions of equity and, and justice. And yet I think that conversation ends up getting in the way of actually embracing the potential for whole system reform, because we do need to put more nutrients in the soil you know, where, where we are making our food. We, we need to reinvest in nature in a really significant way. And you know, I know you're joking about Walmart, but one of the ways you do that is is by actually trying to build systems where you can eat closer to home and eat healthier at home. And you're right about this coming from a position of privilege, which needs to be fairly acknowledged. I mean, we're still in a country where there are food deserts in the middle of cities, right? Where kids are living off Cheetos. Absolutely. You know, it's hard to talk about any environmental challenge without addressing inequality of countries, neighborhoods, populations, the inequality of the most basic supply chains. And, you know, there's it, it just another reason why, assuming there's one single solution to these, any of these problems, you know, just kind of sounds silly once you really begin to unpack them. 
Okay, so I've got one question. Um, we're set with a game, right, Justin? We are set with a game. Wait, did I win? I want to know. Did I win? <laughs> you won. You're gonna. You you definitely you'll get a won. reward. <laughs> so yes, no, that, that was really great, actually. And and those were hard questions, by the way, Justin. This was this was a harder version of the game than the one that we usually play. He's a smart guy. Yeah. I'm not gonna let him. Yeah, off no, the hook. you seriously, you got the harder version of this game. Like I don't know that I would have passed. I'm gonna wake up in the middle of the night sweating those answers. God, Justin. <laughs> what I think you got out of it is that you know Rare is going to be selling species in. Nice. Um, So, so you've brought up Paul Butler. You've talked about you know the leagues of Paul Butlers that have also been you know cultivated over time. Uh, I'm curious, what are the top three characteristics of someone who can be truly successful in your space? And include yourself in that model of like, what does that person need to have in their short list of qualities? That's a really good question. I almost want to dodge the question by saying, I think what you need are teams because no one, no single leader does any of this stuff by themselves. I mean, you need a balance on a team of vision and willingness to fail, of diligence and rigor and a passion for data, of experimentation and a willingness to literally just be tenacious and dogged about actually delivering. In the beginning of my career, I spent an inordinate amount of time, you know, with no money, a teeny tiny budget in a far flung place, trying to envision change and then rally the troops and the volunteers to figure out how to bring it about. As you sort of evolve your career, you become more of an executive, you're less hands-on. So you spend more and more of your time in the ideation and and sales space, but you also have to spend an, an inordinate amount of time working on the enterprise so that you have the kind of team that balances out and makes up for your own weaknesses or, or leverages your strengths. And, and I think, I don't know about an individual, because I don't think there's any single person who does anything in this field. It's just too hard. It's too complicated. You know, CEOs get both too much blame and too much credit. You know, certainly in this space, I think you need a team and that team has to have those kinds of characteristics, the ability to dream big and then the passion to actually do all the hard work that that helps you realize it. Yeah, I don't think you dodged the question at all. Just working in an innovation lab I, that I personally believe an individual by themselves in the innovation space is nothing more than either the piece of paper or a pencil, but not even the stuff in between. You need a team to pull it all together and make something real. Couldn't agree more. All right. I'm going to ask you one final question, Brett. What about the future of the planet gives you the most hope and what gives you the greatest pause? Not That's not a big question, I know. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, the planet's going to be fine. The question is, how are the people we love and their descendants going to fare? And I think that's the scary question because We have, as we move towards 10 billion people on this planet, produced an absolutely undeniable tragedy of the commons in our atmosphere, on the ocean, and on land. We all count every day on almost a free supply of oxygen and water and the rest of the life support system that this atmosphere provides us. And there's ample evidence that humans are capable of squandering a really good opportunity. We don't always cooperate. We are often selfish. We're egotistical. We're immature. We tend to focus on our own picayune, ridiculous needs. And we're not very good at keeping our eyes on the big picture. And so something like the atmosphere is uh, virtually impossible for humanity to grasp. And the finite nature of this opportunity, even more challenging. I guess what gives me hope is just how much change for the good our small minds working together have been able to engender over time. And so you look at the falling rate of childhood malnutrition, you look at the falling, the precipitous drop of child mortality, you look at the invention of medicine and vaccines and a modern healthcare system that's able to, you know, essentially end a plague, at least in one country, over the course of 18 months. Can we globalize that? Or are we going to be stuck in vaccine nationalism? I think these are the kinds of real, real-time, real 
tests that kind of give us sign of what our future environment holds for us. Because if we can learn how to cooperate at scale, then we can learn how to solve these common pool resource challenges at scale. So I guess what gives me pause is looking around with a skeptical eye at the record of our appetite for natural destruction on the planet. And what gives me hope is the fact that humans do self-interest pretty well. Um, Humans do cooperation pretty well at times when it's in their self-interest. And so if we can figure out how to more quickly and deeply evolve our culture globally to walk a little more lightly on the planet, I think we've got a good shot at sticking around for a while, but it's not a given. Hear, hear. Powerful words. Brett Jenks, CEO, Rare. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy your trip to the Channel Islands. I want to hear all about it later. All right. I'll report back. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening to Transpose. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little.